You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If everyone had proper backups, ransomware would never have been a thing. Just simple as that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories this week, and later in the show, Michael Gillespie from MSISoft joins us. He's going to describe the ID Ransomware Project, and we're also going to get his insights on how users and organizations can protect themselves from these sorts of threats. And we are back. Joe, why don't you kick things off for us this week? Dave, this week I have a story from Bleeping Computer. Okay. And it's just something they've noticed in their email over there. They have noticed that they've gotten an uptick in a very unsophisticated phishing campaign. Hmm. And here's how it works. They started receiving these messages that read something like, hey, please click here to confirm your unsubscribe request. Okay. There's no mention of what they're unsubscribing from, but it looks like one of these messages that you used to get when you would subscribe to a news list and you'd say, okay, I don't want to get this anymore. And you click the unsubscribe mm. button and they'd send you an email to confirm that you were unsubscribing. It was a very convoluted and terrible system. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. And it, it looks like it's trying to, to imitate that from days gone by. And they have some images of these emails in the article, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. And they look like they are from the same template, from the same toolkit to me. Huh. And I'm going to speculate on that later. Okay. But the link, the unsubscribe part of the email is actually a mail to link. Hmm. Right now, this is an HTML feature that you used to see all over web pages uh, where you you see contact the webmaster or email me. Right. And you click on a link and it opens up your native, whatever your default mail client is and populates everything for you with a subject line and a to address. Yeah. And if you are silly enough to click on the link that comes in this email, uh, (laughs) then it will start a new email for you. And try to send it to something like 15 to 20 email addresses. Email addresses it gets from where? From it, They're in the, the HTML, in the, in the email that you receive. Oh. So that link is a mail-to link with 15 email addresses in it, 15 to 20 email addresses in hmm. it. And the subject line is unsubscribe. And that's all that's in there. That's a blank email. In a mail-to link, you can fill out other stuff like body and all, all this other information, CC, BCC, right. if you wanted to. But uh, it's, it's an older... Thing that you don't really see on the web very much anymore. You still see it from time to time, but it's because HTML is now permeated into our email system mm-hmm. as well. It's a feature that's available here. Now, Bleeping Computer speculates, and I would agree with this assessment as well, that what this is is an attempt to validate good email addresses. Hmm. We talked about this a couple months ago with the unsubscribe link, right? The, mm-hmm. When you click on that unsubscribe link, that actually validates that your email address is being used and read and there's a person on the other end. This looks like they're taking some kind of spam list that they bought. Maybe they bought a, a spam list at a, at a steep discount. They're essentially going through and they're distilling their list down to a more pure product for future campaigns. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to agree with that assessment that Bleeping Computer has. But here's my theory on this. The messages look very similar. The two images in the article, they look very similar. They're just worded a little bit differently. And maybe there's some typing that didn't happen in one that happened in the other. I think this is a fishing kit. Hmm. That somebody's developed, and you're going to start seeing these coming around. 
Well, so here's what I wonder. If I hit the unsubscribe button and that sends out 15 to 20 emails. Correct. Those are coming from me. Correct. How are the bad guys getting notification as to whether those 15 or 20 emails are good or not? The bad guys are the 15 to 20 email addresses. So when you click that link, you're sending 15 to 20 bad guys an email. With from your, you. From you. Oh. Right. Huh. Okay. So that's how this works. Now, why are there 15 to 20 of them? I have a theory about this. Uh, go on. This is a wild theory, mm. but I've never seen this before in something like this. So perhaps the phishing kit developers put their own email addresses into that mail to tag and these operators who bought it didn't replace them. They just added theirs to it. So essentially the kit developers are getting all these free hits on good email addresses. I have a prediction on how this is going to get worse. Okay. The next kit will have a feature where you can click a link and it will go to a website. The link in the website will then validate the email because it will have a unique code. That's how this is going to get better. I mean, in terms of a more proper phishing campaign, right? I mean, this is really a, to them. This is a real hack phishing campaign. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very basic and rudimentary. It relies on email and relies on people sending an email to 20 email addresses. It probably works. Just to gather up good email addresses. To hoover up good email addresses. Which exactly. I guess they can then turn around and sell for a fraction of a penny or use for Use for another what. campaign, probably. Hmm. Okay. So the lesson here is... Don't click on the link. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you didn't ask for it, don't open it. Market is spam in your email client. Mm-hmm. Throw it in the trash. Be done with it. Especially if it gives you no indication of what it is you're unsubscribing from. Yeah, that's the red flag. <laughs> and, it, and the picture in the article, one of them just looks like just total amateurs came up with this. Amateur hackers get results, actually. It's, well, I can imagine someone going through and just cleaning house one day. Just, um, you know, oh, today is the day I'm going to go through and get rid of all these newsletters that I that I don't right. want. And, yeah. and so they're just clicking unsubscribe, unsubscribe, yep. unsubscribe. Yep. And they hit this one and just one of 10 or 20 and... Oh, this one wants me to Kaboom. send an email. Okay, yeah. click. Off you go. <laughs> right, right. They do a they do a search in their email client for the word unsubscribe, and yep. off they go. Yep. All right. To me, this one is a combination of both interesting and a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah. The delayed gratification, I suppose, is not something we're accustomed to seeing from these sorts of folks, right? No, it's it's <laughs> it's not. But I mean, it, there are people that d- do very complex and long-minded campaigns. They take the long view on these things. Mm-hmm. And like you said, a list of validated email addresses is valuable. If I could sell that list to other spammers, I can probably make good money off that. Right. And if you can do it in an automated way. Right. There's very little effort on your part. Even better. Yeah. Okay. Well, my story this week comes to us from Fast Company. This is a story titled, We Keep Falling for Phishing Emails and Google Just Revealed Why. Hmm. This is from Rob Pegararo. He's writing over at uh, Fast Company. This is from the Black Hat Security Conference, which just wrapped up recently in Las Vegas. And a couple of uh, security researchers from Google, it was Ellie Burstein, and from the University of Florida, a professor, Daniela Oliveira, mm-hmm. they uh, shared some information that they had gathered up from Google. And this article outlines how Google blocks roughly 100 million phishing emails every day. Right. And they that fall. Seems low, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it says they fall into uh, three main categories highly targeted but low volume spear phishing, okay. which are aimed at distinct individuals. The next category they call boutique phishing which targets only a few dozen people. 
And then there's the automated bulk fishing, which is the stuff that just the shotgun approach right. that goes out to everybody. How long do you think a fishing campaign runs for? What is the duration that you think one of these is in operation? You're talking about sending out an email to a given email list. Yeah. I, I set up a fishing campaign and I hit the go button on it. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. All That's right. That's my guess. Okay. Google says that the boutique campaigns typically run for about seven minutes. Seven minutes. And the bulk operations run for about 13 hours. Okay. Which is interesting hours. because you can see how that makes the cat and mouse game more difficult. Right. When something's only running for seven minutes, it yeah, comes you can't, and goes. You can't build a fingerprint off mm -hmm. of it, right? I mean, because by the time you've got the data, the attack is over. Right. They also said that most of the phishing campaigns target commercial mail services. Your corporate email account is almost five times more likely to receive a phishing email than a plain old Gmail account. Right. That's probably because Google has a much better mechanism for catching that phishing email than your corporate email does. Hmm. Interesting point. They said that the most common impersonated login pages were for email services, 42%. Mm 25% -hmm. were cloud services followed by financial institutions, retail, and delivery services. Hmm. It's interesting, too, that they said Google can't identify many phishing emails. They vary enough that they're evolving so quickly, and the way that they're composed, the AI isn't quite there yet to be able to right. reliably stop them every time. Well, you think yeah. about just, We've talked about how run-of-the-mill spam is pretty much a solved problem. You know, right. the old, the old uh, Viagra pills and you know those kinds of... Those hardly ever make it through anymore. Right. But the phishing stuff still does. Yeah. Another interesting thing from this presentation they gave, they talked about how the human factors, like whether or not you're in a good mood, really affects your susceptibility to phishing emails. And what were the findings about mood versus susceptibility? If you're in a good mood, you are much more likely to be in a mental mode where you're going to be willing to take risks. Right. So you're more likely to click that link. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because what's the worst that could happen? I'm in a great mood. I'm having a great day. I'm immediately picturing myself in a bad mood going, I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. Delete. Right. You, you're in a bad mood just from being presented with the link at all. Right. right? In, yeah. in, in, in an email. <laughs> right. That just puts you in a, in a bad me. mood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the recommendations they made, the ground we've covered before, most important is uh, just some sort of two-step verification. And as we've talked about here many times, SMS is good but uh, some other, a physical device or a, an, uh, using something like Google's Authenticator or uh, Yubico, those sorts of things are those even are all much better. better. Much, yeah. much better. Yeah. So uh, some interesting stats there from uh, Google, uh, courtesy of the folks over at Fast Company. So that is my story this week. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. My favorite part of the show. So our catch of the day this week comes from a listener named Jojus, and I hope I got that right. Uh, it's a tricky one. There are many possible pronunciations I can imagine, so yes. uh, I apologize in <laughs> advance if I did not get it correct. We do appreciate you sending it in, and uh, this is a message that he received, and it goes like this. Aloha! As your affairs, 
I would like better to find out each other. I search reliable for relations in networks. My name is Katyusha. I positive and sociable the woman. I have no bad habits. I do not smoke and I do not use spirits. I love to be engaged fitness. If not against throughout hours acquaintances, let to me know. If you want, I can tell to you more about myself. I never was married and do not have the kinder. Please write to me more about you. I wish to fasten acquaintance with you and to find out you better. If you can, please, you have come to me photos. And after I will send to you mine photos. With impatience, I wait your answer with huge impatience. With the best regards, Katyusha. You think this went through Google Translate or something, Joe? <laughs> it, could, it could be. All right, my but, favorite is I wish to fasten acquaintance with you. Right. Where is it? Talk about spirits. I do not use spirits. Mm-hmm. Right. I.e. I don't drink. Right. Uh, right. Th- this is why I'm thinking this was sent through a translator. Right. Yeah. I do not have the kinder. I imagine that means I don't have children. Right. As in kindergarten, that sort of thing. But so. why? Why kinder? I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. Anyway, it's a great one. Yeah. <laughs> I love this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Short and sweet, simple. Thank you to Jojus for sending it in to us. Again, apologies if I got the name wrong. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got Michael Gillespie from MSISoft joining us. He's going to describe the ID ransomware project, and we're going to get his insights on how users and organizations can best protect themselves from the threats we talk about here. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Gillespie. He's from MSISoft, and he also runs the ID Ransomware website. Doing some really good stuff here. Here's my interview with Mike Gillespie. ID Ransomware is a website that I built, goodness, over three years ago now. It's flown. Its primary purpose is identifying a ransomware and this came out of a need from being a volunteer on the bleeping computer forums mostly. The forums would get completely swamped with people, you know, opening new topics and it kind of became chaos with like, hey, my files have this extension and this is the ransom note. What hit me? Can I get my files back? Everything between me and the moderators was like canned responses. Oh, well, you have this extension. So it's most likely this ransomware. Here's a link to an article about it and very canned responses over and over. And well, my profession is I'm a programmer. So what do I do? I automate. <laughs> <laughs> well, walk us through what exactly uh, goes on. How does it function? When you get to the website, basically, it just asks you to upload the ransom note and one of the files that the ransomware encrypted and you just upload both of those pieces of information. Of course, recommend you upload something non-private if you can. I don't keep the files around, but you know, just for general purposes, you shouldn't be uploading personal information somewhere anyway. Right. And then my website does a lot of cross-referencing, you know, checking the file extension, uh, checking the name of the ransom note, all the email addresses or Bitcoin addresses, or maybe onion addresses in the note. Also, some ransomware leave like a file marker. Like, for example, Tesla Crypt left a file marker saying dead beef at the beginning of the file. Hmm. Some other ransomware have like more in-depth detection. I have like special code just to detect that one ransomware. So there's also other sources I pull from. There's like a ransomware tracker that's an external project by someone that they track like all the command center URLs. Um, I cross reference with that, and it's a big beast. It's got a lot of stuff under the hood for detections. <laughs> and what's the uh, the likelihood that you'll be able to ID something that someone sends to you? It's probably up in the like ninety to ninety five percent with identification. The challenge is that there are 
Well, in the last few years, especially there, there's been additional challenges with ransomware, like mimicking each other. So that does add an extra layer of complexity, but I do have like a whole false positive engine that I built <laughs> for that purpose. I mean, you can just upload just the ransom note or just an encrypted file, but the best accuracy is definitely uploading both so that it can do its false positives and try to figure that out better. And then once you've ID'd something, do you offer advice for folks on, on how they might either be able to decrypt or proceed? Yep. So there are basically a couple of different, I call them statuses. The, the best case, of course, is congratulations. This is a uh, decryptable ransomware. You know, it's known to be decryptable. Here's a link to an article showing how to use a decryptor. Then there's the, sorry, this has been analyzed by experts as not decryptable. It's recommended you back up your files in case something changes in the future. Then there's like the unknown. There are a lot of ransomware that, you know, it might be something that's really new. So I don't know if it's decryptable or not, or no one in the industry has either had the time or published an analysis on it, whether it's secure or not. And then there's also kind of a gray area. There's a, I have a possible status that's kind of like, this is decryptable under certain circumstances. So there's like certain ransomware that's like, sometimes it forgets to delete the key file, but you got to get lucky. Or sometimes it's like law enforcement seized the server and they got some of the keys, but not every key. So it's kind of like you might get lucky. It might be decryptable. Now, in the years that you've been tracking ransomware, what sort of changes have you seen? How, how has it evolved? I definitely say they keep getting more creative. Like in general, like I mentioned, they keep mimicking each other, which gets very, very annoying. There's probably like a hundred different ransomware that just use the extension .locked. So those are like hmm. not unique, so I can't identify them very well. <laughs> and then um, also they, they keep adding more, I want to say features. So like, for example, a recent one that's been really prolific is Stop DJ Vu. That one they started packaging password stealers. Hmm. So like adding other malware with it, they add it to a botnet or um, like a banking Trojan. So they're, they're kind of getting more creative. And even just a ransomware I analyzed last week that I'm breaking currently, they kind of took liberty and invented their own crypto block mode, which was very odd to reverse. Do you have any sense for the the spectrum of sophistication of the actors that you're dealing with here? I mean, I have seen definitely a lot of cases of pretty sophisticated actors, when, especially the ones that are targeting certain organizations, you know, the ones that actually go are in a network, um, not just the spray and pray sending out email spam, but once they actually get remoted into the server, those are usually the more dangerous bad guys. Now, in terms of folks uh, best protecting themselves from ransomware, what's your advice? Backups. Backups, 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 backups. <laughs> Freaking I, backups. <laughs> I get the feeling that you're recommending backups here, Michael. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is the number one thing. There's basically two factors in terms of why ransomware still even is a thing. If everyone had proper backups, ransomware would never have been a thing. Just simple as that. There'd be no profit for it because everyone would just be like, hit the restore button. That's mm -hmm. how it should be. Uh, the second factor, of course, is the whole controversy of paying the bad guys. That's what keeps them going. But there would be no reason to pay them if you had 
backups. I mean, do you have any sympathy for some of these larger, you know, underfunded organizations? I'm thinking of, you know, city governments and so forth who find themselves either with uh, insufficient backups or unreliable backups and, uh, you know, doing the best they can. But sometimes I, I guess they decide that the cheapest way out is to pay the ransom. It is a very complicated subject, of course. <laughs> yeah. Being in, I, I've been in IT for goodness, since like 2006. And I also work for a company that services small to medium business and residential. And I get everywhere from the spectrum of grandma doesn't know how to back up her stuff to, you know, small business who, you know, the IT manager is trying to push for certain infrastructure and it's just not getting budgeted. To my core, I'm like, sorry, there's no excuse for not having backups in 2019. I mean, mm-hmm. cloud storage is, I don't want to say it's dirt cheap, depending on your needs. I mean, for grandma, you can get her a free Dropbox with 10 gigs of of backup space for nothing. Or you can get, you know, Carbonite or OneDrive or something. It's like two to five bucks a month. Right. It's, it's very affordable for residential for sure. But in terms of business, it kind of irks me, especially certain industries where the data is your business. Like, for example, I... I kind of went on a rant a few months ago on like the photography industry. Hmm. I run into that all the time where photographers get hit by ransomware and they have absolutely no backups. And it's Hmm. just, it blows my mind. Your entire business model is taking and storing digital pictures for your clients. And you can't have the tenacity to buy a hundred dollar backup terabyte drive and just back up that wedding's photos as soon as you finish the shoot. That just irks me. <laughs> what about the the sophistication of, of some of the ransomware strains that try to hunt down your backups and encrypt those as well? That is definitely a reason that you should have an off-site backup, such as a, a, a cloud backup. Most good cloud backups, I know for certain Carbonite, Dropbox, and Google Drive have a revision system to where if, you know, for example, if you get hit by ransomware and it, it uploads your encrypted files and overwrites your, your backup, Carbonite actually has a way that you can roll back to a week ago. Mm. So they have like set in revisions. That would definitely be if you're looking into a cloud provider, I'd definitely look in to make sure they have that feature. You bring up a good point. It's something we talk about on this show quite a bit, which is, you know, those of us who have some abilities, uh, you know, in the technical realm, looking out for our friends and family. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about my parents, for example, and just, you know, going in there behind the scenes and setting them up for success. Yep. I've had to do that for some of my family as well. And I know it's uh, as the IT guy in the family, sometimes it's a little annoying. You know, you go to you go to Thanksgiving dinner and grandma's asking you a weird <laughs> weird computer questions you're like uh (laughs) but yeah at the end of the day i mean at at a minimum at least just set them up on you know like dropbox or like uh, windows 10 really forces the the one drive down your throat so just embrace it for her (laughs) joe what do you think i like what michael's doing yeah Um, i'm a big fan I like the fact that you can go there, you can upload some samples. He's got a uh, false positive engine, that's great. And then he points you in the direction of free decryptors. There's also a site, nomoransom.org, which does a similar thing that offers you know, decryptors. I think you can download them directly from there. I like that Michael's site will go through the process of IDing the ransomware for you and telling you what the strain is and 
running a lot of analytics on the data that you give it. Mm -hmm. He's one of those folks out there who's helping make the internet a better place for the rest of us using his skills, his technical skills. Absolutely. No, he's doing um, good work. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Also helping people when they're at a moment when they're probably not feeling very good about things. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting about, uh, what was it, the Tesla ransomware? He was talking about it had a file tag at the beginning, dead beef. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a very old thing. It's the words you can spell with uh, hexadecimal characters. Hmm. So it's, I don't know if that has any bearing on anything. I just think it's interesting. It's just an old hacker yeah, thing old from hacker back thing. in the day. Yeah, yeah. that is interesting. I totally see how mimicking can be frustrating. The mimicking that goes on in that marketplace can be frustrating. Mm-hmm. Because particularly when you're trying to identify these strains of ransomware and they start mimicking each other or maybe even just copying code from each other, that's going to make that job a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think I have to agree with what Michael said, uh, that <laughs> the first four rules of computing are backup, 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 and backup. <laughs> right. Um, I, I actually am a user of OneDrive, Google Drive, and uh, I used to be a user of Dropbox as well. I don't have an account with them anymore mm-hmm. that I pay for. But I was working today with Audacity, which creates a whole bunch of files for every change you make to any audio file you're working with. And mm-hmm. then if you undo it, it deletes those files that it just created. Mm. And every time I undid a change, I got a warning from OneDrive that said, hey, you just deleted a bunch of files. Did you mean to do that? Mm-hmm. Right? You'd get that if you got a bunch of files deleted or encrypted as well. Right. You can roll back 30 days with OneDrive as well and all the other products that Michael mentioned. I guess the, the point is that these days with the availability of online data, mm-hmm. it's really cost effective to back up online. You combine that with a higher speed connectivity, right? people's connections to the net are faster. So it makes it practical to store your stuff online. It does. And you can get it anywhere as well. Whatever these cloud storage solutions, they have multiple platform solutions. So you can get your your data on your Android device or your Apple device or Mm -hmm. your your laptop. doesn't matter. You can have access to your data. That and you get protection from ransomware if you put all your data in the cloud. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. And you can use more than one. That's right. Right. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks to Michael Gillespie from uh, MSISOF for joining us and uh, all the work he's doing there yeah, at the thanks ID. Thanks for the work, Michael. That's yeah, amazing. The ID ransomware site. Uh, good stuff. Nice to have folks like that out there. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 